If someone were to come to you and say, hey friend, at its center, at its core, what does it mean to be a Christian? How would you answer that? The world, the media, and frankly, the church is quite confused on this point. And while there are many opinions on what the essence of Christianity is, I think we would be hard-pressed to find a better description of the essentials of Christianity than what the Apostle Peter has provided for us in today's text. And I'll go ahead and answer the question I pose to you. Christianity is a hope that produces holiness. Christianity is a hope that produces holiness. Hence, I've entitled this sermon, Hope and Holiness. In our text, the Apostle Paul is going to give three commands which will serve as the sermon's outline. So if you take notes, here is the outline for today's sermon. Number one, Christians set your hope fully on future grace. Christians set your hope fully on future grace. That's verse 13. Number two, Christians live holy lives. Christians live holy lives. That's verses 14 through 16. And last but certainly not least, Christians live in reverent fear of the Father. Christians live in reverent fear of the Father. That's verses 17 through 21. So before we go any further, let's go to our Father and ask him for help this morning as we study 1 Peter chapter 1. Father, thank you for the gift of gathering as your church. I thank you for this church and what you've been doing here for so many years. I thank you for all the believers who are here this morning. Lord, we have come together because we are weak and we are in need of hearing from you. We have come together to proclaim the great life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that through the gospel, we have a secured future hope. And Father, until the day that you call us home or until Christ returns, Lord, we plead with you this morning that you would help us to set our hope fully on this future grace. Strengthen us to live holy lives. Lord, give us the grace to live in reverent fear of you. We ask these things through our risen Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, friends, if you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter, and if you are able, I invite you to stand with me in honoring the reading of the Word of God this morning. Hear the word of our Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children— Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Christians, settle your hope fully on future grace. That's our first point this morning. And if you're looking at our text, verse 13, you'll notice that our text begins with the word, therefore. Peter employs this word to bring our attention to the first 12 verses written in this letter. Up to this point, if you're familiar with the letter of 1 Peter, you know that Peter has not given his readers a single thing to do. He hasn't issued a single command. Rather, Peter has spent 12 verses telling us glorious truths about what God has done for us. Peter wants his readers to be holy as God. He wants us to marvel wondrous works through Christ and to adore him for who he is and what he has done. And then, after doing all of those things, Peter calls his readers to action. But only after establishing the glorious redemptive work God has provided through Jesus. And friends, this is really important for us to understand. Because in Scripture, the indicatives, what God has done for us in Christ, the indicatives are always the basis for the imperatives, how we should live. This is what separates Christianity from all the other religions in the world. We are called to obedience because of what Christ has done on our behalf. So to confuse this order would be disastrous. It would mean that we would serve a works-based righteousness. We would instead see works as the means by which we obtain holiness. And that is not what Scripture teaches. So as I said in my introduction, Christianity is a hope that produces holiness. So in verse 13, Peter transitions from what God has done for us through Christ to how we are now to live. Peter begins by giving his readers a command. If you look in verse 13, it's actually at the end of verse 13. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, in the Greek, there's only one imperative in verse 13. Everything else that might be rendered as a command in your English translations, like preparing your minds for action or be sober-minded, those are participles that are supporting the main verb. And what Peter is doing in verse 13 is he is instructing elect exiles. The term he uses to define Christians living in the fallen world. He is instructing these elect exiles to hope in future grace. You may recall that Peter's original recipients have endured many trials. That's what he said back in chapter 1, verse 6. And considering his reader's present circumstance, Peter instructs them to remember the hope that they have as Christians. You might be asking, what is that hope? And Peter tells us the last half of verse 13. Peter says that these Christians are to set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This hope is future grace. This exhortation by Peter 
Church, it reminds you and I that the saving work that Christ has done in us is not yet fully complete. We, we understand this to be true, right? We, we wrestle with our sinful flesh and we wrestle with old evil desires that used to plague our lives prior to salvation. And here, this grace that Peter talks of, this future grace, will presumably complete the sanctifying work that we believers so, long, so desperately long for. The work in which we will no longer sin. This grace that Peter talks about will be brought to us when Christ returns. This is, as Paul tells Titus, the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ for which we await. And as we'll see in our text, this hope makes us holy, but only insofar as we fight for it. Only insofar as we fight to keep our eyes fixed on this future grace. So church, Peter is directing all Christians from every age to look forward in this certain, secured, guaranteed hope. He's calling us to look forward to the day when Christ will return and we will receive our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for us. But how do we set our hope on future grace? It's nice that Peter commands us to set our hope on future grace, but how do we actually do that? And Peter tells us in verse 13, the first way that we are to set our hope on future grace is by preparing our minds for action. Some of your translations might say girding up the loins of your mind. That's a literal translation of what Peter is saying. Friends, in the ancient world, when robes were the normal garment of the day, what girding up the loins meant is you were to collect the folds of your robe, pull them between your legs, and you were to tuck them in your belt or tie them around your waist. You did that so you could run or you could work or perform some kind of strenuous activity. I love how John Piper calls it. He says it's turning your robe into running shorts. Peter is actually borrowing language from Exodus 12 verse 11 here. If you're not familiar with Exodus 12, it's where God had gathered the Israelites and told them to take of the Passover meal, but they were to gather the robes, tuck them into their belt, and be ready to go because the Lord was about to deliver them out of Egypt. So Peter is applying that image from Exodus 12 to our minds. Meaning he wants us to keep our minds sharp, that we are ready for action and we are tuned to the grace on which we are to set our hope on. So how do we do that? We gird up the loins of our minds or we prepare our minds for action. How do we actually Gird up the loins of our mind. I love questions. When I study the text, I just keep asking more questions. And Dr. Schreiner, I think, says it best. He says, hope, that Peter calls us to, will not become a reality without disciplined thinking. It, it, it just won't. If we, as Christians, are to set our hope on this guaranteed future grace, it requires effort. It actually requires concentration and intentionality. 
if we fill our minds with the things of this world, we will not set our hope on future grace. If we fill our minds with the things of this world, we will struggle to keep our minds sharply attuned to this guaranteed grace that is coming at the day at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Believers, we cannot hope fully in the grace that will be ours at the coming of Christ when we are constantly taking in the counsel of the world and not combating that with the truth of God's word. We hope fully in grace when our minds are sharp, when they're dialed in to truth. This is really a direct correlation between what we fill our minds with and what we hope in. Peter's exhortation is to think on the things of God. To think on scripture. To think on the things that are good and true and beautiful. Not on the things that are evil, false, and ugly. The second way that Peter tells us to set our hope on this future grace is by being sober-minded. What's the opposite of sober-minded? Drunk, right? Not, not clear in your thinking. Notice the pattern here that, that Peter is laying out for us. Again, he's dealing with our thoughts. He's effectively saying, hey, Christians, do not let your mind become intoxicated by that which would detract from the hope that belongs to you in Christ. This is an exhortation beyond a warning against dress. It warns against the numbing influence on your mind that would callous your hope in grace. In other words, your mind cannot run in truth and in grace if it is weighed down by meaningless, meaningless nonsense that this world just keeps hammering at us with. So church, if, if you, believer, if you find it hard to rope in the garments of your thinking, if you find it hard to keep your mind focused on this future grace that is ours, that the revelation of Jesus Christ, more than likely it is because your mind has become intoxicated by the things of this world. Peter is calling believers to fuel their hope by girding up the loins of their mind and being sober-minded. We might say it this way, Peter is calling us to be active in the fight to feed our minds with truth. So Christian, are you th what are your thinking patterns? Are you thinking consistently with the command set before us to hope fully in the grace that is ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Does the fact that Christ is returned, does that influence how you live your life? Or have you become callous and indifferent to this truth? Are you fighting to fill your mind with truth so as to set your hope on future grace constantly? Are you living in such a way that unbelievers see your life and see that you really do have a confident hope in this God that you say you love and that he will come back for you? 
So having called his readers to settle their hope on future grace through active and clear thinking on truth, Peter now calls his readers to live holy lives. Look at what he says in verses 14 through 16. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Christians live holy lives. That's the second point of our sermon this morning. In verse 14, Peter correctly describes the original recipient's former lives. They were pagans who, in their ignorance, were conformed to wicked, evil, sinful passions. And we know that from chapter 4, verse 3. And if you are a student of the Bible, you know that ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, Genesis 3 is such an important part of our understanding of humanity. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, human beings have been incapable of living a holy life. All of us are born into this world hopelessly infected by the disease of sin. Therefore, even our attempts at righteousness are corrupted by sin and selfishness. Peter's original recipients lived lives that were characterized by wicked, evil, sinful passions that were contrary to God and his holiness. But as Peter stated in chapter 1 verse 3, these believers, something happened to them. God the Father, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, has caused them and all of us who profess Christ to be born again to a living hope. Because of the new birth, Peter says we are now obedient children. It is now in their nature and ours to obey. Church, understand what's being said here. It is normal for God's family to obey the Father and to walk in the way marked by his character and law. That is not abnormal. That is normal for those who follow Jesus Christ. Therefore, when Peter exhorts, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, it should come as no surprise to us. Because we strive with that hope set on when Christ returns, we strive daily to not go back to our former sinful ways. Peter's effectively saying, don't go back to what you've been ransomed from. The mere fact that Peter writes these words, friends, they serve as a wake-up call for every one of us. Because Peter understands something that even though we are believers, even though the Spirit indwells in our hearts, we still, as I said a moment ago, wrestle against our flesh. We still have to fight our, own, our old sinful ways. The Christian life is not one of passivity. We are not fully sanctified, so we must continue to be alert, to be sober-minded. We must fight against the temptation to go back to what the precious blood of Jesus Christ ransomed us from. We must fight 
to be holy. The new birth that Peter speaks of in chapter 1, verse 3. Friends, it is the awakening of new desires. Hence the call to be holy. Equally, it is not the eradication of the old desires. The new birth is the beginning of the indwelling of the spirit, not the destruction of the flesh. That will come. There will be a day in which our sin nature will be destroyed and we will no longer need to be commanded to be holy because that will be who we are. But that glorification, friends, it awaits the last day at the return of Christ. Remember, that is the content of the hope in which we are to set our our hope on the future grace. In other words, the new beginning is the, be, the new birth is the beginning of our battle against sin and our battle for holiness. So we must fight. We must resist conformity to the passions of our former ignorance. How? Well, how do you combat ignorance? With truth. You must gird up the loins of your mind and be clear in your thinking, daily reminding yourself that holiness holds the promise of infinitely greater and lasting joy, while sin may offer pleasure for the short term, but it is a fleeting, deceptive pleasure. Holiness offers joy that lasts for eternity. So Peter exhorts us to not go back to our former evil desires that characterize our lives before Christ ransomed us. And Peter follows verse 14 with saying these words, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Church, the counter to going back to your former evil, sinful passions is to set your hope on future grace and remember your identity as obedient children of the holy God. Only after the hope of the gospel has penetrated our hearts can we be holy. And I love it because Peter doesn't hold any punches here. Right? He makes it clear that in light of the hope we Christians have in Christ, we are to be holy. I'll say it again, as obedient children of God, we should take on his traits. Friends, the holiness of believer's life is to match that of God, who called the believer to salvation in himself. We might say it like this, like father, like son. We should be reflecting our Father in how we conduct ourselves daily. God's children should look more and more like their Father. What does it mean, though, to be holy? Church, I submit to you that holiness involves a person's righteousness, their justice, and their separation from sin. God is the standard of holiness. So being holy means that our lives conform to God's purposes and character. Dr. Haupt states it like this. I love this quote. Holiness 
is whatever God delights in, whatever is pleasing to him. And Jesus always did what was pleasing to God. Therefore, Jesus is the perfect picture of holiness. So church, if you want to know what holiness is, look at the life of Jesus as laid out for us in the four gospel accounts. If you want to be holy, pattern your life around that of Christ. And notice that Peter doesn't say to be holy in a portion of your life. No, he says to be holy in all your conduct. You know, I, I actually, I, I confess, I read that and I see the words, I'm like, yes and amen. But functionally, I don't always believe that. Sometimes I look at these words and go, oh, that's just a mere suggestion. But it's not, it's a command. The children of God are to be holy in all their conduct. It's a comprehensive call to holiness. It involves every aspect of our lives, from what we think, to what we say, to how we act. Every part of our lives are to be holy. And notice that the call to holiness is rooted in what God is like. Look at verse 16. He says, Since it is written, you shall be holy, circle the next few words, for I, God, am holy. You know what book Peter's quoting from, right? Everyone's favorite book, the book of Leviticus. The one that people do all types of Bible studies around, right? But did you know that the majority of what Jesus quotes from is actually from the book of Leviticus? And here, Peter is pulling from the book of Leviticus a whole section in which they, we call it the holiness code. He's pulling from that and he's talking to his readers here and he's saying, set your hope on future grace, right? Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded and make sure your life is conducted in a way that it would reflect the holiness of God. Why? Because the one who saved you is holy, so you should not look anything else other than like the one who saved you. And that is what Peter is saying here. He's saying, remember the Old Testament where we hammer out that God says he is holy and as such his people, Israel, were to be holy? Guess what? In the New Testament, God is still holy and his people, the church, are to be holy. The reason believers are to be holy is that the one who called us to himself is holy. I cannot reiterate that enough. Verse 16 is reiterating truth that God's people are to pattern their lives after God himself. Church, when God calls us to be holy, listen, it is not first a call to obey a list of commands. Not at all. It is first a call to delight in what God delights in and to hate what God hates. We are holy when we delight in what God delights in and hate what God hates. And that's why Peter says in verse 14, do not go back to your former evil passionate desires that you were ransomed from, but delight in the things that God delights in. And hate the things that God hates. 
In his book, Holiness, J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors, if you have never read this book, I commend it to you. On page 96, he says this, Our sins are often as dear to us as our children. We love them. We hug them. We cleave to them. And we delight in them. To part with them is as hard as cutting off a right hand or plucking out our right eye. But it must be done. The parting must come. You and your sin must quarrel if you and God are to be friends. To be a Christian will cost us our sins. And then later on, he says this, a single day in hell will be worse than a whole life spent carrying the cross of Christ. Brothers and sisters, are your lives marked and characterized by holiness? Do you actively fight to keep yourself from going back to your formal, former sinful, evil desires? God calls us through his word to a life of holiness. So again, I ask, are you holy? Do you want to bring glory to the Father? Be holy. Do you want to win others to Christ? Be holy. Do you want your life to show the world that you belong to God? Peter says, be holy in all your conduct. A Christian who has settled their hope on future grace has a life that is marked by holiness. So because of this glorious inheritance that Peter talks about in verses 1 through 12, because of this glorious inheritance that we have through the resurrection of Christ, and only because of that, believers are number one, to hope fully in future grace, and number two, live holy lives. We live holy lives by the power of the Spirit. Not by our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now in verses 17 through 21, Peter instructs these elect exiles, these believers who are living in a sin-cursed world, he instructs them to, number three, live in reverent fear of the Father. Let's read verses 17 through 21. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile— knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Christians, live in reverent fear of the Father. There's only one command in verses 17 through 21, and it's found at the end of verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear. 
Because of the inheritance and salvation believers anticipate, verses 1 through 12, they should set their hope completely on Christ's coming, verse 13, and devote themselves to holiness, verse 15. And now they should live in reverent fear of the Father. The remaining verses, verses 18 through 21, will explain to us why believers should live in reverent fear of the Father. See, friends, the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord, including fear of his justice, is the beginning of wisdom. That's what Proverbs 1, 7 says and Matthew 10, 28 say. And what Peter is doing here in this section is he's contemplating the final judgment. And he says that the same one that you believers call Father Well, he's the same one to whom you will stand in front of on judgment day. And just as human children both respect and obey the parents whom they love, so those who call God the Father should love and obey him. Why? Because he will also be our judge. And he says in verse 17 that God the Father, your Father believers, he's a just God. And he judges each man's work, he says in verse 17, impartially. He neither looks at appearances nor plays favorites. He judges our deeds and nothing is hidden from him. Jesus states in Matthew 16, 27, that he will reward each person according to what he has done. Now please hear what I'm about to say. This in no way nullifies justification by faith alone. But God will judge, and Jesus will be proved right when he says in Matthew seven sixteen and 20, you will recognize them by their fruit. This is not salvation by works. No, this reflects the great principle that our, our work flows out of our heart's commitment so that genuine faith will show itself both in word and deed. So with the final judgment in mind, Peter calls believers to conduct themselves in reverent fear. The context helps us understand that he's talking about reverent fear here. Peter, again, is just driving home this fact that he wants them to keep the hope of Christ's return at the forefront of their minds and let that hope, let that future grace inform how they live their lives each day. In other words, a reverent fear of judgment hinders believers from indulging in their former sinful passions. And the basis for our uh, our reverent fear of God is found right here in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Look at these next words. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Like two of the most precious metals he comes up with and he's like, you weren't bought with two of the most precious metals we have here on earth. No. Look at verse 19. You were bought, you were ransomed, you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. The blood that like that of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Church, we should live lives of reverent fear of God because he has ransomed us by the blood of his one and only son. 
You know, prior to salvation, we were all inheritors of a futile, vain way of life. And we inherited that, he says, according to your forefathers. We were born into sin. So before being ransomed by Christ, we were running towards hell and we were doing so with smiles on our faces. That was our inheritance. Vanity. Futile way of living. But now through Christ, God the Father has provided us with a glorious inheritance. And how has he done that? By ransoming us through the precious blood of Christ. Your Bible might say redeemed. It's the same word. There has been a redemption price that has been paid to purchase us out of this vain and futile way of life and into the family of God. And notice once again the cost of our redemption. Not silver or gold. Those things will perish. It was the precious blood of Christ. So friend, if you are a follower of Christ, rejoice with me right now. You are ransomed by the blood of Christ. Not because of anything you or I did, but because of his immense, wonderful grace. You know, in the book of Exodus, we read that God redeemed and ransomed Israel from their house of slavery in Egypt. But now, now he has performed an even greater redemption. He's performed this greater redemption through the new and greater Exodus, through the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus the Christ. Because God has ransomed us with such a costly price, the blood of Christ, Peter tells us that we are to live our lives in reverent fear. Setting our hope on this coming day when Christ will return. Girding up the loins of our mind, being clear in our thinking, living holy lives and remembering, recalling that we will give an account of our lives before Christ. So therefore, believers... Let those truths inform every decision that you make every day of your life until you are fully sanctified. If you're here today and and you're not a follower of Christ, this is the good news that we Christians talk about all the time. We really can't get over it. Christ died for us. I know who I was before Christ saved me. The mere fact that I'm standing before you today is a declaration of God's sovereign grace. So we can't help but talk about this wonderful grace that comes through the shed blood of Christ. Jesus did not wait for any believer in here. He did not wait for me to clean myself up. He did not wait for me to become worthy of his sacrifice. No, Jesus died for you and I while we were still sinners. Jesus came to us. He lived the life we were supposed to live. He died the death that was reserved for us. 
And three days later, God the Father raised him from the grave, defeating death and sin once for all. So now all who repent and believe are freed from the enslavement of sin and will one day see our Savior face to face and live in everlasting joy. How could we go back to our former ignorant ways? When Christ spilt his blood to buy us, Friends, Jesus is alive this morning. And he is calling you to turn from your sins and to trust in him for salvation. He is calling you away from your futile, vain way of living and into an, a, a glorious inheritance. To the Christian in here, the one we call Father is our creator. He is our judge, but he is also our redeemer. Isn't that wonderful? The one who redeems was foreknown, Peter says in verse 20, for the foundations of the earth, who shed his precious blood, appeared for your sake and mine in the last times. The one who shed his precious blood for you is the one God raised from the dead and gave him glory. And what is the result of all these actions by God? Look at the end of verse 21. So that your faith and hope are in God. We have faith and hope in God because of Christ. The passage actually begins and ends with hope. He bookends this passage by saying, If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an exile and stranger here, but... You have a certain secured hope that is taken care of, guarded by God for you and will be revealed to you at the coming of Jesus Christ. Oh, Christian, look at what length God has gone in order to rescue you. A sinner who was not worthy of the precious blood of Christ. This makes our God look glorious. So church, in light of our glorious inheritance purchased by the blood of Christ, you've got to understand that. I'm not calling you to live holy lives on your own account, but in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our lives ought to be marked by, Peter says, number one, a settled hope on the coming grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friend, do you have your hope set on the coming of Christ? Number two, in light of this glorious inheritance purchased by the precious blood of Christ, we are to live lives that are marked by holiness. Friends, church, are your lives marked by holiness in all your conduct? And number three, in light of this glorious inheritance purchased by the precious blood of Christ, our lives ought to be marked by reverent fear for Almighty God. Friends, do you walk in love and reverent fear of Almighty God? Peter says all that he has commanded in verses 13 through 21 are rooted in this truth. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And three days later, God raised him from the grave. And the power of the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us as believers. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can continue to set our hope on this future grace, live holy lives, and live in reverent fear of the Father. In our passage this morning, Peter has told us that the essence of Christianity is a hope that produces holiness. May we leave this place today giving God the Father all the glory and honor for this hope. And may this hope change the way we live. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful yet for your kindness. We are unworthy sinners who plead the blood of Christ this morning. Thank you for this glorious inheritance that we know is coming. And Lord, forgive me where I have just become entangled in the things of this world. I've become too busy to stop and refocus and settle my mind and my heart on this blessed hope that will be given to me, this future grace that will be given to me and all believers at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I plead for help on behalf of all believers in this room that we would gird up the loins of our minds by the power of the Spirit, that we would be sober-minded by the power of the Spirit, that we would live lives that are marked by holiness by the power of the Spirit, and that we would live daily in reverent fear of you, giving you praise and honor and glory for the resurrection of Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.